Ugh, I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny Kane. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed, so I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners, from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre- and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. 
Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening. Hello, Mighty Parent or Parent-to-be. I'm Adriana Lozada, and I want to welcome you to Birthful as we continue with our Care Provider series. So far in this series, we've talked in broad strokes about the different types of care providers, about the importance of choosing the right care provider, and how to know if you and your care provider are a good fit, because you need to be able to establish a relationship built on trust, where you are heard, where your wishes are respected, and where you participate in shared decision-making. Now go ahead and get comfy, because in the next few episodes, we're going to be taking a closer look at the different types of care providers, starting today with obstetricians, or OBs for short. And I want to give you a heads up that today's conversation with obstetrician Dr. Stu Fishbein may get a bit controversial at times, and may even be uncomfortable for you if you are under the care of an obstetrician. But especially for that reason, you really need to hear it. Dr. Stu has been practicing obstetrics since 1986 and has had a front row seat to how training for obstetricians has changed during that time. Stu still actively cares for pregnant people in community birth settings and is one of those rare OBs that still practices and teaches the skills of breech birth. He also somehow finds the time to podcast. He is the co-host of the podcast Birthing Instincts. Okay, so by now you probably know how much I love putting things into context, so there are a few things you need to know before I talk. The first is that in the U.S., 98% of births happen in hospitals, and 90% of those births are cared for by OBs. You may then assume that this means that an OB is the best care provider for the job, but more and more we are seeing that this may not be the case if you are in good health and have an uncomplicated pregnancy. Even though OBs are the go-to care providers for birth in the U.S., it may surprise you to hear that they are not really trained in normal physiological pregnancy and birth, but rather in managing the process with interventions. And that is great if you actually need the interventions. Don't get me wrong. I am so grateful that we have access to cesareans and magnesium drips, and the people who know how to use them. But if you have an uncomplicated pregnancy, you most likely do not need any of the interventions, but rather a person well-versed in physiological birth who is really comfortable taking a lifeguard approach to paraphrase Robin Elise Wise. Now, the history of how we got to such a medicalized state of birth dates back to the 1800s. It is quite complex often steeped in sexism and racism, and in too many cases, with economic interests put ahead of the patient's best interests. So the second set of facts that you need to know is that even though the U.S. spends more money on perinatal care than other highly resourced countries, we have some of the worst perinatal outcomes in the world. And these outcomes are significantly worse if you are a person of color. What's even more staggering is that many, if not most, of these negative outcomes are preventable. Fortunately, awareness about this perinatal healthcare crisis and the over-medicalization of birth has been rising with an ongoing push for change at a governmental and consumer level. 
Even the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has published a committee opinion titled Approaches to Limit Interventions During Labor and Birth that, of course, I've linked in the show notes. And in this committee opinion, ACOG recognizes that, quote, Many common obstetric practices are of limited or uncertain benefit for low-risk women in spontaneous labor, end quote. And while looking at different models, what keeps coming up again and again is the importance of increasing access to the midwifery model of care for healthy and uncomplicated births, with midwives and OBs working collaboratively to escalate care to a more managed approach with OBs when it's necessary. As a point of reference, in the UK, more than half of all babies are delivered by midwives, and in France and Scandinavian countries, it's more like three-quarters of all babies. And as you might already know where I'm going with this, they all have better outcomes than we do. So you might be thinking, okay, great context, but what does that have to do with my particular care provider? Well, since chances are that your care provider is an OB, and until the current model changes, most OBs continue to be trained to intervene, you need to basically figure out how intervention-happy, if you will, your provider is. Because to re-quote ACOG's committee opinion, many common obstetric practices are of limited or uncertain benefit for low-risk women in spontaneous labor. Basically, the point of this episode is to give you some behind-the-scenes of obstetrics so that you can know what to expect and take the reins of your experience. I also want to underline that not all obstetricians practice a medicalized model of care, just like not all midwives practice a low-intervention model of care. And in fact, if you heard my previous episode with Nana Aisen Akiwawo, you know that her OB was the perfect fit for what she needed. And oh my god, this is even true for laborists. I have a fantastic episode with Dr. Nicole Rankins precisely on how to avoid a cascade of interventions. And Dr. Rankins is both a laborist and a big proponent of supporting physiological birth. So even though in this episode we will be talking in generalities, you need to turn on your critical filters and match our conversation to your particular care provider. Ultimately, the goal is for you to find a care provider that works with you and your wishes, allowing for your birth to unfold while being ready to intervene if needed or as you desire, but not by default. And Dr. Stu has some great suggestions of questions you can ask your care providers, ways to prepare during pregnancy, and other actions you can take as labor starts. You're listening to Birthful, here to inform your intuition. Dr. Stu, welcome. It's so great to have you here. Thanks, Adriana. I'm happy to be here and looking forward to talking to you. So tell me a bit. You were trained in the medical model of obstetrics, but decided to support the midwifery model of care. Why don't we clarify that for listeners? What are the differences between the two models and what led you in that direction? Well, quite simply, the difference between the two models is how they how they look at human pregnancy and labor. Uh, the medical model looks at human pregnancy and labor essentially as a disease requiring treatment, observation, like something's going to be going wrong at any moment. And uh, only modern medicine can help deliver babies safely. That's sort of the way it's really looked at. I mean, it sounds simplistic, but that is true. That's why it's hospital-based. That's why every woman's given an IV. That's why women are 
generally not allowed to eat. That's why women are continuously monitored. That's why there's a team of obstetricians and nurses and neonatal personnel and anesthesiologists and everybody on standby because they're waiting for something to go wrong so they can intervene. The midwifery model looks at pregnancy and labor as wellness and something that is a normal function of the female body and only requires intervention when something goes wrong. So midwives are experts at normal birthing, while doctors are experts at abnormal birthing. The problem, of course, is that about 85% of women in this country are normal laboring and birthing women, and the people that are taking care of them actually have very little training in taking care of normal birthing. So it's sort of a paradox because we should be allowing women to be cared for by the practitioner of their choice. We should be supporting a model that treats pregnancy as a normal human function rather than a malfunction. And the medical model is clinging to its principles, much to the detriment, in my opinion, of many in this country who deserve better. But somebody once told me that having an OB, it kind of put things into perspective for me. Yeah. Having an OB, you know, in charge of a low-risk pregnancy and delivery was akin to having a trained psychologist come and babysit your child. Like, it was overkill because... Chances are, unless there's something actually wrong, you don't need that much level of, of training. OBs are, first and foremost, surgeons. Well, yeah, and, and it's, that's a really good analogy. I heard it slightly differently, but that's, that's perfectly why we're overqualified for 85% of what we're doing, and we're not even trained in it to do it. So, yes, and the thing that really irks me and the thing that's really... I would call it a pet peeve of mine, is the people that are training our next generation of obstetricians, the academicians, the maternal fetal medicine specialists, the people working in academia and hospitals, are not training them to be obstetricians. They're training them to be, as you said, generalists or surgeons, and there's very little in between. Because, Adriana, when you think about it, what makes the obstetrician unique? And in my opinion, what makes an obstetrician unique is that they can do things that a family practitioner or a midwife or a general surgeon cannot do. And they're not training those skills anymore. And I'm talking about things like forceps delivery, breach delivery, breach extraction of a second twin, external version, that sort of thing. And, and having skills that separate you out from a generalist. And if you're not teaching obstetricians to do those things anymore, what good is the specialty of obstetrics? I mean, we, if, if a woman has a bladder problem, she can see a GYN neurologist. If a woman has a high-risk pregnancy, she can see a maternal fetal medicine specialist. If the woman needs a cesarean section, she could have a general surgeon, even a family practitioner can do that sort of thing. If a woman has a hormone problem, she can see a reproductive endocrinologist. So what is the purpose of a general OBGYN, which we're training and putting out in, in large numbers, when all they're really doing is general office OBGYN and C-section. Midwives can catch normal babies. We don't need doctors for that. So what I would argue is that obstetricians are becoming obsolete and are, are eliminating themselves from the marketplace over time unless they start to retrain their students in the skills that make us unique, like reach delivery 
and four-step delivery and twin vaginal delivery and those sorts of things. Why do you think all the, the training of those skills has gone away? No, there's three reasons, and none of them are good. I, I basically call them expediency, economics, and medical legal concerns. And by expediency, I mean it's a lot easier for a lot of doctors to just do cesarean sections than it is to deal with hospital policies that may require them to spend 12 hours in a hospital with a VBAC or a breach when they get the same pay and can be back in the office or be home for dinner by doing a, a cesarean section that takes 45 minutes. The incentives are all backwards. Economically, although doctors may not make more money by doing a cesarean section, it certainly can save some of their time. But hospitals certainly make more money on a cesarean section than they do on a vaginal birth. And if a hospital's prime motive is to stay open and its fiduciary duty is to maximize its income, then there's actually no incentive for a hospital to lower its C-section rate. And the third thing I think is the medical legal concern that in my own opinion, is blown way out of proportion because I do believe that if you have a good relationship with your client and spend time with them and get to know them, which of course is also being destroyed by the medical model uh, of the shift medicine mentality. But if you have a good relationship, you're not very likely to get sued. And I think that the fear of liability is often used as a hammer to get people, both professional uh, medical people and clients to do what you want them to do. So hospitals, they put risk management far above patient care on their criteria. They'll never say that. And they'll never, you know, you look at the mission statement and it isn't there. But ultimately, in the bowels of the hospital boardrooms, it's risk management that runs the show and not patient satisfaction or patient care. And it is sort of tragic. And I know that it is sort of negative, but but it is a reality. And I, I look, I spent 28 years working at a hospital, now working at home. There's a clear difference as to the quality of care that patients get. So why why things won't change in the hospital setting are really those three reasons. Economics, expediency, and the fear of medical legal concerns, even if it's not as real as they think it is, it doesn't really matter. It's what it's what the administrators and people that run hospitals now, they make the decisions. The, the, the ideal situation, Adriana, would be to get normal birth out of the hospital and, and use the hospital like you would for any other issue. For digestion and breathing, we don't go to the hospital. But when we have asthma or we have a colitis, we go to the hospital. You know, people will say, well, what if something goes wrong? Well, the problem is things are far more likely to go wrong when you're in the hospital than when you're out of the hospital if you select, you know, your clients properly, if you if you know what you're doing and you're well-trained. And that's why I'm saying midwives are very well-trained in normal, and therefore they can easily recognize abnormal, mm-hmm. whereas doctors are not really comfortable in that in that role. Right, and they are trained to intervene, so they want to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, in the training model by which doctors are trained, or even in the private practice model, doctors don't deal with normal laboring women, and they're called to the labor room by the nurse when something needs to be done. So it becomes ingrained in their system that when they enter the labor room, it's time to do something. It could be start pitocin, it could be rupture membranes, it could be start pushing before the woman is ready to start pushing, it could be whatever it is. But since you called me there, now I must do something mentality is pervasive. Wouldn't it be nice for a doctor to walk in a room when they got called in from home and realize that there's nothing they need to be doing right now and say, you know, gee, uh, Susie, you're doing really, really well. I'm going to go in the lounge and you keep doing what you're doing and I'll be back in a bit. 
it would be fantastic. And it goes back to understanding birth as a physiological process where being scared, being, you know, having adrenaline come into it, feeling anxious, those are a detriment to the process. So that quote unquote intervention that would be best is to bring calm. That could be the thing you do, bring calm or bring reassurance. And that comes from being a confident practitioner, but also comes from having a good relationship long before that day. And the problem with the medical model, we have another, well, there's multiples, but another problem is the fact that the primary caregiver to a woman in labor in a hospital setting is someone she's never met. And that would be the nurse that changes shift every 12 hours. And so, again, there's no real comfort zone there. Plus, the whole idea of any mammal leaving its place of safety and comfort and getting in a car and driving to another place, which is a place of anxiety and and stress, and thinking that that mammal is going to labor well there while she's restricted in movement and not allowed to eat and constantly interrupted and all the things that go on at a hospital is is silly. And yet it is the it's the pervasive way of thinking, which becomes then the standard of care by the true definition of standard care, which is what most, most physicians in a community would consider to be normal. And therefore, the standard of care is anti-mammalian because that's not how mammals give birth. They don't give birth in a setting where they're interrupted, anxious, immobilized, starved. It doesn't work well. You wouldn't do, I know this is sounds controversial, but it's not. You wouldn't do to your dog in labor what we do to a human. Yeah, and I've had on the show on um, several different practitioners, including uh, Diane Wiesinger and Karen Strange, talking about those different aspects. It all comes back to the same center of birth of the physiological process. And I really like your analogy about breathing and asthma. About which one? Uh, breathing. Oh, and asthma. And yeah. having asthma. Like for breathing, you're you're not like, oh, I have to breathe. Let me go to the hospital. <laughs> But we do say, oh, I have to birth. Let me go to the hospital. Right. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, with all your knowledge and how you've gone from having a practice in a hospital to now a sort of a home birth or a birthing center practice, <laughs> what are the differences that you've seen in terms of outcomes and satisfaction with practicing a midwifery model of care? The satisfaction level for both the clients and for myself have skyrocketed. I, I'm absolutely certain of that. I just think it's a it's a much better model for caring for women who are not in need of hospital-based care. And I don't even like to use the term high-risk Adriana because it's a term that by very it's very by calling anything high risk, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you and you basically by labeling someone high risk, you instill anxiety and fear into them, which is already setting them up to fail. Just because a woman is tiny or a woman is over 35 or you think she has a big thing. I always wonder, why does a doctor say to a woman when in her third trimester, why do they say things like, no, your hips are really small or I think you have a big baby or that baby's head looks really big on ultrasound. Why do they say that? You know, and I I know why they say it. They're projecting their own anxiety onto the woman so they can alleviate themselves of their own it's very psychological. I mean, we ought to get a psychiatrist on our discussion to talk about all these things because there's so much uh, projection, you know, fear involved in, in what goes on. I don't see it so much at home because the home birth clients are well-educated. 
They've researched the thing. A lot of them are doing it because they have a, didn't have a good experience in the hospital with the first one, or someone in their family didn't, or they have a long history of home birthing. But the difference is, is night and day, because at home, they feel safe. They can move about. They're allowed to eat. They're not strapped down with monitors. Uh, they're in familiar environments. They're not interrupted constantly. You know, the, the hospitals have policies and protocols that are put in place for no scientific reason. They're put in place because of risk management. The idea that a woman needs her blood pressure taken every half hour, every hour in labor, is silly. It's ridiculous. That continuous fetal monitoring thing is known, it's already been shown, to do nothing but raise the cesarean section rate. Everybody knows that, yet hospitals won't get rid of that. Finally, they're beginning to do things like allowing women to eat. I love the word allow, by the way. It, it, it seems like the, the hospital is magnanimous by allowing a woman to eat. It goes back to that whole psychological thing we were talking about. I'm going to let you go two weeks past your due date. I'm going to let you, like I could force your body to do something. Yeah, it's a bit of language that, again, doctors are taught this in residency and in our culture, and it takes an awakening to really realize that the, the words that we use, calling women clients or, or calling them patients, clients is a term that midwives use, that it's taken me a long time to become uh, aware of the fact that by labeling someone a patient, you're basically calling them patients are reserved for the people who are sick. That's what a patient is. So a, a pregnant woman is not sick, but if you call her a patient all the time, it just sort of sets the tone. With Mother's Day coming up fast, are you looking to get your mom, grandma, or mother figure a gift that they'll actually love? You know, something that is treasured instead of dying out or collecting dust? If so, you need to know about mylifeinabook.com, which is a service that helps turn their life stories into a beautiful book that can be passed down. How amazing is that? And the process couldn't be easier. Basically, if they can use email, they can create their book. Every week, My Life in a Book will send them an email with a prompt question to get them started. And if they don't like the question, they can easily edit it or change it. We gave a My Life in a Book to a family member that always wants to document all family get-togethers through images. And let me tell you, the process of sending the gift was super simple, even letting us choose the date we wanted the gift to be sent. I'm so looking forward to discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, and the challenges she has overcome. And since My Life in a Book lets you add an image with each answer, she can now share the story that goes along with her many photos. Another great thing is that the answers can be edited at any time before the book is printed, in case she wants to add anything else. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 10% off today. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You've taken gorgeous photos of your baby or your kids, and then when you want to share them, it is a pain either trying to find the photos or figuring out the group text that they should go to, and then also remembering that, say, Aunt Helen only does email, so you need to send her image separately 
Or like in my case, where my husband is a photographer who takes magnificent photos that I rarely actually get to see because they live on his phone or end up scattered in text messages that I can't easily find. Enter the Family Album app, which was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with your loved ones. Basically, it's a personal space for your family's memories without third-party ads or unwanted eyes and with a bunch of fabulous features. It automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and easily see how your child has grown. And you can also order eight photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. The Family Album app also has unlimited storage. Plus, it's totally free. Yup, no more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by third-party ads. So, to all the parents out there still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, level up your family photo game for free and securely with the Family Album photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, all in one word, and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. The reality is most people are going to give birth at a hospital with an OB. Yes. It's going to take a long time for that to change. It's a drastic cultural change. But for the people who are having a hospital birth with an OB, what can they do? to ask more from their OB, to receive better care? Well, the number one thing I think a woman who's giving birth in a hospital, especially if it's her first baby, can do to improve outcomes and improve her situation is to hire a doula. I think that it's very clear that a woman with a doula is more likely to have the birth that she wants, including the route that she wants, vaginal, than if she doesn't have a doula, especially in her first pregnancy. Secondly, you can't be afraid to ask your doctor questions. And you can't ask him a silly, I mean, it's a silly question to ask him what's his C-section rate, all right? Because if it's really high, he's not going to be able to tell you about it anyway. So that's really not the right question. But the question you should ask is sort of, you know, how would you feel about me not being monitored? How would you feel about me walking around? Will I be able to eat in my labor? How do you deal with the baby when it comes out if it's fine? Can the baby be put right on my chest and leave the cord alone. What are the policies and procedures at your hospital that you have to, to come to? And find out whether, that, whether that's compatible. You can look at the C-section rate at the individual hospitals because those are posted online. But hospital rates are really only dependent on the individual doctor rate. One of the things that came out recently, which I thought was really interesting, is they looked at the laborist model. Um, and they looked at a laborist model in a single institution and the whole idea of a laborist is that they have a, a doctor working like a 12-hour shift that's doing all the deliveries. And so they feel like it takes away the time pressure. Other doctors in private practice who want to get to the office or want to get home to push the envelope or do a C-section, if there's somebody just sitting there in the hospital all the time, they felt like it was going to take away that and it would probably lower the C-section rate. Of course, they did all this without any research whatsoever. They just Somebody thinks of an idea and they implement it. And they don't research it first. And what they found in this in this paper was that the C-section rate was completely dependent on the individual laborist, not on the model. It had nothing to do with the model. It had to deal with the skill of the laborist and the comfort of the laborist. So 
So ultimately, the model isn't going to change anything. It's the skills of the doctor. And if you're in a hospital with a laborist model that's going to be taking care of you, remember, you're going to be taken care of by somebody you've probably never met, and you have no idea about their skills. So I would personally avoid a hospital with a laborist model. I would try to find a hospital that allows midwives to deal with the normal labor stuff, and, and you're far more likely to have a better outcome. And it's really interesting, that result about the laborist model being dependent on the comfort level of the person who's taken care of, of the birth, which is similar to the outcomes that you find with the quote-unquote big baby, that the biggest indicator of a cesarean for a big baby is having the care provider think that it's a big baby. That gives yeah. you a higher risk, a higher incidence of a C-section than the actual weight of the baby. Well, you know, much to their credit, although it carries no weight, ACOG has come out, the American College of OBGYN has come out with certain statements about allowing women to labor longer and not doing C-sections for suspected macrosomia or borderline amniotic fluid. But the truth is, is that they're, they're papers that don't fit with the model by which doctors and hospitals want to practice are completely ignored. And papers that come out that fit the model by which they want to practice are adopted quickly. When they come out with an anti-breach paper or an anti-home birth paper, some those are those are accepted quickly. But when they come out with a allow women to labor longer or breach delivery is actually something that should be retaught and retrained, those things you know take forever to be incorporated if they are at all. So there's a cognitive dissonance of science selection that goes on, and things that support the model by which people want to practice are promoted, and, and if, if it puts them in a position of feeling uncomfortable with the way they practice, then that report is ignored or ridiculed. That's classic cognitive dissonance, and that's, what go, that's what's going on. They have to know that in 1970 in America, the C-section rate was 5.5%. Now it's 32%. And we have nothing to show for that as far as better outcomes to speak of. And in fact, we probably have worse outcomes, and in the long term, we might find that Although cesarean section babies, there's greater risks of other things going on. But putting that aside, we have a, a, a 500% increase in the C-section rate with nothing to show for it. And this is the model by which is, which is considered still the standard and is the, the model of excellence by which home birth midwives and doctors like me are compared against. You know, and we come out with our 6 and 7 and 8% C-section rate, and that doesn't make any difference. We're, what we're doing is dangerous, and what they're doing is standard and, and uh, the, be the best care. And it's, there has to be a cognitive dissonance because even when I say it like that, it sounds ridiculous. And I think that circles back to something else I wanted to talk about, which was the whole idea of informed consent and birth is a human right. And I know you're a huge advocate for that. I mean, when we have informed consent, it's a nice theory, but every day in every hospital and every doctor's office, we all violate the tenet of informed consent, and technically, we all violate our medical ethical obligation to give information to women and then support their reasonable choices, because we all skew our information, and we all we don't give informed consent, and we don't support women's reasonable choices. I mean, we know that VBAC is a reasonable choice, right, Adriana? I mean, it's in this country, the NIH, ACOG, everybody else supports the option of VBAC. Yet there are many, many hospitals and many physicians who tell patients that if they're going to have a VBAC, they can't do it at our institution because it's really dangerous 
and the baby could die, right? So that's a violation of medical ethics. And they vilify those of us that support VBAC. So we know by everything in the literature that it is a reasonable choice. And beneficence-based ethics says that if it's a reasonable choice, we as physicians to support that choice. Now, support could be, I will help you with your VBAC, or I would love to help you with your VBAC, but I can't because my institution won't allow it. But if you go to the doctor down in that other county or that other city, then you can have your VBAC. That would be reasonable and ethical. But to tell a woman that if she tries a VBAC, she's being an idiot, is not ethical. Well, right. And we've talked about how important wording and language is when talking to especially, you know, any clients, but especially a pregnant person who is by definition in a more vulnerable, heightened state. And, and, and they rightfully so will hear something like, oh, your baby's big, what you were mentioned before, and be anxious about it. And then that will have their body respond and affect the physiological process. Yeah, I don't think the physicians are taught that the effect of anxiety uh, that you'd mentioned earlier, the effect of fear and anxiety on a mammalian birth is detrimental to labor. I mean, it puts out adrenaline, it stops the contraction, it stops labor, it delays the onset of labor. I don't even know that the average physician knows that stuff. But the idea that normal birth should be something that, that we fear and that we need to turn into a procedure is pervasive. So, you know, I, I, I find it really hard to, to blame the young physicians coming out because, as you said, they're indoctrinated. And we've had three generations of American women indoctrinated into believing that their body doesn't know how to do this. So here's what I'm trying to wrap my brain around. Because the, the purpose of this episode <laughs> was to try to give ways to make their experience better. All right, well, then let's, let's concentrate on that because I've already sort of just made it made, made that much more difficult. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> right, let's, let's go back to helping. All right, so doula is very helpful. Picking an institution that may allow you to um, have a birth plan and to enforce your own choices. The problem is many people live in a community where there's only one hospital and there's very little choice and there's really not much they can do. And for those people, I would tell you that if you have a home birth midwife in your community, at least check it out. At least have an interview with her and, and see whether that is something that you can consider. If you're going to the hospital, you want to go to the hospital as late as possible. Go to the hospital when you're eight or nine centimeters dilated. And then you're less likely to get intervened upon. Because the problem, of course, if you go to the hospital too early, then because of the change in venue and because of the anxiety provoked there, your labor will likely space out a little bit. But now you're in the hospital, and since you're in the hospital, we might as well get things moving. And so they either rupture your membranes or they start pitocin. And then, of course, that hurts. So you use epidural, and they get the whole cascade going. And, and that happens because you get there too early. So don't get to the hospital too early. And by the way, another good point would be if you find a physician, ask them what the physician recommends if you're at home and your water breaks. Because if the physician says you need to come to the hospital right away, I'd run away from that physician. I would like to find a physician who says, well, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And if the fluid is clear and the baby's moving and everything's quiet, you should stay home. That's the physician that I might feel more comfortable with than one who tells you you immediately need to go to the hospital because now you go to the hospital and then what happens? Well, you sit there. And of course, hospitals don't like it when you sit there. And so they start doing stuff. And you don't want 
be doing stuff. There is no such thing as an 18-hour or 24-hour rule. Do you really think that bacteria know that it's 24 hours or that an infection is likely to occur? An infection is very unlikely to occur in a woman who ruptures her membrane, who isn't contracting, and who isn't being examined, uh, and especially if her group B strep status is, is negative. Does that make sense? Makes absolute sense to me. As a birth doula, I know very much what you're talking about. But then we have all these media depictions of birth where the first thing that happens is water breaks and people run to the hospital. And it's ingrained like in the back of the mind. And I always tell people like your water doesn't have to break even like you can be in labor and it can be the last thing that happens. Yeah. So I guess... If we're going to come full circle, it goes back always to people informing themselves so they can understand what's important to them. That's another good point is that a well-informed woman is a much calmer and much more likely to have success woman. And I think the midwifery model is geared toward that because the prenatal visits in the midwifery model are either, you know often 30 to 60 minutes long. And in the medical model, it's essentially you're lucky if you get six minutes. For a prenatal visit. You can't possibly educate somebody and talk about wellness, talk about nutrition, talk about stress reduction and sleep and all the things that, that help keep a woman healthy in a six or seven minute office visit with a busy physician who unfortunately for, uh, and not of his own making, but the system is such that the reimbursement model and the overhead for running a doctor's office is so high and the reimbursement is so low the doctors, in order to do obstetrics, have to do volume. And when you do volume, you can't do it as well as when you don't do volume. And midwives generally don't do volume. They'll take three or four, home birth midwives I'm talking about, take three or four, maybe five births a month. And you can spend much more time with these people. And then they understand the things that we talked about, like, you know, your, your, your labor may go this way or may go that way, or you may rupture your membranes, you may not rupture your membranes. You may see blood, you may not see blood, these sorts of things. And then you're well prepared and then you're not nervous. And it gets back to the whole mammalian thing. When you're nervous, it doesn't work well and you end up getting intervened upon. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, the medical model. And I didn't know that. And you asked me very early on, by the way, how I ended up doing what I'm doing. And it was not intentional. Of course not. I came out of a residency training program thinking that I knew everything and that, you know, I was hot shit. And I was really good at what I did, but I was very much in the medical model. And so I started backing midwives. I was approached early in my career to be a backup doctor. And I started hanging with midwives and going to some of their meetings. And it, was, it wasn't altruistic. It was a selfish thing. I wanted to build my practice. And uh, I figured that this was just another way to build my practice. I also did free clinics, things like that, because in those days, it was different than now where people come out of residency now and they want to get a salary. They want to work a shift. When I came out, you hustled, you, you hung your shingle, you built your practice. And so I, I worked with a lot of midwives. I started going to midwife meetings and peer reviews and gatherings, and I began to see things in a different way. And then when I wanted to continue practicing the way I was taught to practice, like breach and VBAC, and the hospitals I was working at began banning those things. And I, I worked with midwives in a collaborative practice, and we had really good outcomes. And then the hospital and the anesthesia department and the pediatric department and the OB department didn't like the fact that we were using midwives for very selfish reasons on their part. They began to ban the midwives from working there, and then they stopped me from doing breach delivery, and then they banned VBAC, and 
it really is an individual. It's very difficult to fight a large institution. You always lose, and it takes a lot. Takes a big toll on you, both financially and emotionally. So, how did you make it work? I'm we're thinking more of. I'm not going to ask specifics of your financials, but how can other physicians make it work as well? Well, the only way that another physician can make it work is if they really desire to learn these skills and if they feel comfortable with birth. And in today's world, most residents coming out are not feeling comfortable with birth. And so it's doing what I'm doing, where you don't have an anesthesiologist and you don't have an ICU team standing by, is very uncomfortable for most physicians and most obstetricians. I mean, I've, I've tried to recruit a couple of local guys here, and you know they're very, very reluctant to let go of well, what they consider to be the safety of having these other people standing by, because that's how they train. It's all they know. And and again, it requires certain skills that I have that midwives don't have, like forceps, and, and I can go past 42 weeks, which they can't do here in California. I can do it 36 weeks, which they can't do here in California. I, you know, Again, why these laws get passed is all, again, about turf and territory and the false argument of safety. I mean, if, if doctors would only return their inspection of what's safe on themselves, we might have improvement in the hospital-based model. I would like to reach out to, to young doctors and, and have them come to midwifery meetings and seminars, but it's very hard to reach them. It's very hard to get them to do it, and you need somebody who's going to look at what's going on right now and say, this isn't right. And it's very hard to do that when you're a student or a resident. And I feel that we've been saying that this isn't quite right for a while now, and things are starting to change, but so slowly, and it's like that two steps forward, one step back, cha-cha. I know I'm not. I'm asking a lot of you by saying, like, what is the answer? How can we do this? It's hard because the evidence is out there supporting what we're doing, and at least it's a reasonable option, right? There may be articles that say home birth is unsafe, and there are articles that say hospital birth has higher C-section rates and maternal mortality, and there are articles on both sides. There's enough evidence out there to say that ultimately whatever decision a hospital wants to make or the doctor wants to make, the decision doesn't belong to them. The decision belongs to the pregnant woman who's well-informed. And our obligation is to inform them well and then support their decision. And if we could all get back to the basic ethical thing and not be so worried about economics and expediency and medical legal concerns, our whole country would be better off. I mean, pregnancy affects every family. Every, everybody in the country knows somebody who's pregnant. And yet, as you said earlier, it's so distorted. The world that they see about pregnancy is so distorted. You know, it's, it's sensationalism. Sensationalism sells. And unfortunately, birth has been, like everything else, it's been sensationalized. And it really doesn't have to be. It really doesn't have to be. People need to educate themselves. And, you know, when you're 80 years old, you may not even remember your wedding, but you're going to remember the birth of your children. And a lot of people don't have very good memory of that. And it can make a difference on how you go forth into parenting, on how you, confident you are about bringing up your child. I mean, and I think it does affect more things. Of course it does, Adrienne. The, the medical model does not take into account the, psychi- the psychology of the woman. It does not. You know, their motto is, well, we got a healthy mom and a healthy baby. If I hear that one more time, I'm going to slap somebody. All right? There's much more to it. There's much more to it than that. If anyone has ever gone to an ICANN meeting, an International Cesarean Awareness Network, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you have women there that are scarred probably for life 
because they felt that they were cheated. They felt they weren't given an opportunity. They were induced for no reason. They were allowed to labor long enough. You know, they ended up with a cesarean that was probably unnecessary. I mean, here's a, here's a, here's a glaring statistic. All right, if we just round things around, there's 4 million births a year in the United States, and we have one-third of those women getting a cesarean section, okay, that's about 1.4 million cesarean sections. If the World Health Organization says that the C-section rate should be about 10 to 15 percent, and I think that that's probably reasonable, but let's just say 15 percent, that means that of the 32 percent of women that are getting sections, 17 or over half of them are being sectioned unnecessarily. So we're talking about about seven or 800,000 unnecessary surgeries being done every year, and no one raises a peep about that. You know, if there were 800,000 unnecessary gallbladder surgeries or knee surgeries or hip replacements, people would be pissed about it. But it's, it's cricket. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that that would launch us off into another hour of talking of, you know, birth as a human rights issue and why don't we care or, or people are not, you know, outraged and everybody up in arms about 800,000 unnecessary surgeries. I think women, women should understand that their body was designed to do this. It is very unlikely that you'll grow a baby inside of you that will not sit out. You make it to term and you're otherwise healthy. We're not talking about women who develop severe problems like severe preeclampsia or, or gestational diabetes or preterm labor. We're talking about the normal women that make it to term, the 85 to 90 percent of women. Your body is designed to do this. And if you're confident and comfortable with that information, likelihood that things are going to work out fine. And when you allow labor to go naturally, Rarely, rarely, rarely see the sudden deterioration that you see on television or in the movies. Babies at home, people always wonder, well, what happens if something goes wrong at home? But when you're not meddling at home and you're not oxytocin and epidural and immobilizing scarf, babies won't suddenly deteriorate. It's extremely rare. And babies will give you information and the mothers will give you information in labor by the words they're saying, the sounds they're making, the heart rates, the things that we can listen to that tell you that things are okay. And if they're not, then you then you need intervention. But you don't need intervention to get you a good outcome. As a matter of fact, it's an oxymoron. And that's what I would tell pregnant women is to trust your body. It's designed to do this. It's a normal function that does not require thinking. As a matter of fact, thinking gets in the way. It's a Absolutely. primitive brain function. It's a primitive brain function like breathing or digestion, as we talked about earlier. When you start thinking too much, labor becomes dysfunctional. Yeah, you got to get primal. But before you get primal, know you have options, inform yourself, and trust the process. Because you don't wonder if you, like, are you breathing right? <laughs> are you pooping yeah, right? It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to get primal in, a, in an institution which is constantly interrupting you. It's asking you to sign consent forms about surgery and death and uh, what they call it, uh, advanced directives, uh, what should happen to you if this happens. I mean, nobody wants to come in and labor at. And then they're asking you questions about, like, how many stairs do you have in your house? By the way, the questionnaire that you're asked when you come into a hospital generally for labor is the same questionnaire if you were coming in to have your appendix out. There's no difference. Really? Yeah, they ask you, you know, uh, when did you last eat? Uh, what did, you know, how many stairs do you have in your house? You, you know, what jewelry do you yeah, have yeah. on? What, I mean, what difference does that make? You're coming in for a normal function. Why do you care how many stairs I have in my house? 
Well, they're thinking ahead for possible, you know, surgery. It's like a surgery questionnaire, right? That's exactly right. That's what it is. And by the way, with electronic medical records, they can't get to the next page until they ask you these questions. So they have to ask you all these questions. And and it's not like you're coming there sitting in in a chair. You're contracting every three minutes, and they're asking you these silly questions. There's a disconnect between what you're there for and what and their policies. So don't show up until late. That's what I'm yeah. telling you. And if they say you have to fill out this questionnaire, just say I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Take care of me. By law, a hospital can't make you sign any documents. They can't make you answer any questions. They have to take care of you. All right. Now, if it's convenient for you to cooperate, fine. But if you're in the throes of, of labor, tell them to like leave you alone. Leave me alone. We'll deal with that afterwards. Don't be a pushover. You get to control the situation, contrary to what you're you're taught. Be a shepherd, not a sheep. Yeah, at the end, we can't change the system that quick, as quick as we'd like, but then people have to take it into their own hands. Yeah, I mean, the system is changing. It's just that it probably won't change fast enough for people like you and me in our lifetime to see a significant change. And what ultimately I would love to see is an alternative to the hospital for normal birthing, whether it be birthing centers or or something of that nature. Look what surgery centers did to hospitals. They forced hospitals with their gargantuan uh, bureaucracy to become more efficient to compete with these surgery centers where people are getting surgery, where if you have a 9 o'clock surgery, it starts at 9 o'clock. It doesn't start at, at 10 minutes after 10, which is what happens all the time to doctors and hospitals. It, it was very inconvenient. It was very lethargic. It was the only show in town. And the thing that will change, make hospitals and everybody else change for the better would be competition. The problem, of course, is that most states are lobbied by these big industries to keep things the status quo. And they make it difficult. That's why in states like Oregon and California, they have crazy laws restricting what midwives can and cannot do. Why do they have that? They'll use the guise of safety, but it isn't about safety at all. If you want to be safe in medicine, you need to revise what's going on in the hospital. Hospitals are not safe. There, I said it, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not safe. Everything has risk, all right? Not necessarily lots of risk. Yeah. Everything has risk. There are risks to home birth. There are risks to midwives. There are risks to doctors. There are risks to hospitals. Each person has to weigh this to, to themselves, but... But the idea that VBAC is a procedure and VBAC requires a special skill, don't fall for that. People will often lump, well, I don't do breech twins or VBAC. Well, breech and twins, I can understand you don't have the skill, but VBAC is the absence of doing anything. Don't let someone fool you into thinking that a VBAC is actually a procedure. The VBAC is absence of procedure. It's allowing a woman to deliver vaginally after a cesarean. And that means the best thing that you can do and the one thing that, another thing that doctors don't do well, and that's the ability to do nothing. It's a skill we don't have and that I had to learn. It's very difficult for me sometimes to sit and do nothing, but I've gotten much better at it. Yeah. Be more and do less. What is it? Knit more and do less? What? Be more and do less. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One of the the midwives told me that I should learn knitting. Yes. That's the best way to do nothing. (laughs) Sit in the corner knitting. Yes. Fabulous. Yes. Stu, thank you so much for this lovely talk and all that great information. You're welcome, Adrian. Thank you for what you're doing. 
That was Dr. Stu Fishbein, who has been practicing obstetrics since 1986. Dr. Stu still actively cares for pregnant people in community birth settings, and he travels far and wide teaching hands-on seminars on breech birth. He also offers one-on-one consultations for anyone around the world, including all-access memberships via phone and email. You can find Dr. Stu on Instagram at Birthing Instincts or listen to his podcast called Birthing Instincts. And you can connect with us at Birthful Podcast on Instagram. In fact, if you're not driving, please go ahead and take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to Instagram with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Make sure to tag at Birthful Podcast so we can see it and amplify it. You can find the in-depth show notes and transcript of this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about my birth and postpartum preparation classes and download your free postpartum preparation plan. Birthful is created and produced by me, Adriana Lozada, with production assistance from Asia Plotty. Thank you so very much for listening to and sharing Birthful. Be sure to follow us on GoodPod, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and everywhere you listen. And then come back for more ways to inform your intuition. Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous birthful library. Happy listening.